all these messages are coming in from all these different areas. Well, no wonder why at a very, very early age, none of us feel that great about ourselves. And we either deal with that by having a low self-esteem or we go the other way and we're going to just be better than everybody else, mm -hmm. right? <laughs> and that's how we're going to handle this stuff. And it, it doesn't get handled that way. Any life that's based on a rejection of who you are can never work. Bill Wilson, co-founder of Alcoholics Anonymous, wrote in 1952, if we examine every disturbance we have, great or small, we will find at the root some unhealthy dependence and its consequent demand. Wilson suggested that if we could identify and continually surrender these unrealistic and unrealizable demands, that we may then be able to accomplish what he imagined to be the recovery's next frontier, something he called emotional sobriety. Flash forward 70 years and join psychotherapists and best-selling authors Tom Rutledge and Dr. Alan Berger, who have taken up the mantle of exploring Bill Wilson's new frontier. Welcome to Emotional Sobriety. Welcome to the show, guys. I had a great time with Joe C. last week. Tom's out uh, smoking a cigar with the dogs this particular uh, Sunday afternoon, so it'll just be me and Alan holding down the fort. How you doing, Alan? I'm doing good. I'm feeling you know, great this morning. I had a good, I do these tennis drills on sometimes Saturday morning, sometimes Sunday morning. Today it was Sunday. And I just, I played well today. I feel great. I feel strong. You know, I've increased my physical activity to four days a week now. And it's really, I can really start feeling the benefit of really being more active. And so it's, I'm feeling great right now. I had a good hot shot. I love a after a workout, Hot shower is, well, the bomb, right? I mean, it's yeah. Just, and look, in Pennsylvania, I could take a 10-minute shower and not feel guilty. Yeah, not so much in California, so I envy you that. No, not so much in California, man. There's plenty of water out here. Yeah, it's always Chinatown out here. How are you doing today, Patrick? I'm good. I'm in Portland. I'm visiting a friend that I've not seen in seven years since I was the best man at his wedding, and I was very much in my illness uh, at the time that I visited him. Yes. Um, and so it has just been uh, such a joy to visit him now that I'm in my right mind. And uh, we kind of cultivated our relationship over virtual meetings. We do, we have this kind of regular hangout over FaceTime um, that's been every week uh, for the last probably two years. And man, it's just uh, no friends like old friends, you know. It's nice to keep those connections alive. You and I feel the benefit of having this community of like-minded folks around emotional sobriety that's developed on Thursday nights. And, you know, that's a wonderful group of people show up to explore and, and understand emotional sobriety. And so if you're listening to the podcast and you enjoy what we talk about here, come and join us on Thursday nights. Patrick uh, will have the link to the meeting in the uh, show notes. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, uh, my, my buddy that I'm visiting is, uh, you know, he's not a sober person, but he's been uh, going to church lately. Um, and, uh, you know, he was raised, I think, with some religion, but um, it was uh, it was obligatory and uh, and he didn't really take to it well in his youth. But he's returned to it now um, in his uh, 30s. And he says he's just been getting a lot out of it. And the way he talks about just the fellowship and whatnot, it's uh, very similar to the fellowship I have with friends in recovery and, you know, the meetings. And I don't know, I just think that's a component 
secular or no, um, that uh, is, we, we just, you know, we can't, there's, it's, it would be impossible to oversell it, you know, the importance of it. So true. So true. I mean, it's, it's such an important part of the program. I mean, so are the steps and that's the, to me, the heart of the program, but the fellowship is, is, it makes a, an important contribution to our recovery capital as well. Yeah. Well, and talk about recovery capital. We're going to talk about a piece of recovery capital today. I mean, we've been talking about emotional sobriety, which I think is a, a major, major, you know, asset, internal piece of recovery capital that we can really cultivate and develop the practice of, you know, in our lives. But there is no such thing as, as emotional sobriety without also developing a positive self-esteem. And I think we wanted to focus a bit on that today in this show is to talk about self-esteem, you know, what it is and what can we do to cultivate it? What can we do to increase our self-esteem in our life? And um, before we jump in, do you want to say anything about that in your personal experience with self-esteem? Yeah, well, um, I the thing that pinged in my mind as soon as you started walking through that was how when we first started working together, you told me that I had a real problem with eye contact. And it's true that when I was um, before I got sober, um, you know, when I was really on my last legs, I felt like a whipped dog. I, I felt like I just literally it was almost like uh, a, I was a vampire. I couldn't walk around in daylight without, you know, I, I just literally didn't want uh, people or God to see me <laughs> because I felt so ashamed of um who I was and uh, what I, what I've been up to. And um, that has com- done a complete 180 um, in the, uh, in the years since. And so I'm getting reacquainted with self-esteem or with my own, you know, sense of self-worth and self-esteem. But I, what, what I was hoping you could shed some light on for our audience is the notion of a self-esteem rooted in humility as of being a cornerstone of emotional sobriety and the paradox of that kind of, you know, the self-esteem and you know, we conflate self-esteem with arrogance. I think at times when actually uh, being humility and being in an alignment with reality um, as being, you know, right in line with what self-esteem is all about and how it can feed our feed us, uh, I think is worth uh, getting into a bit. Well, Roger Andes and I coined the phrase authentic, self-esteem based on humility, right? That whole thing. And I think that's important, but let's talk about self-concept in general. So your self-concept are are your thoughts and ideas and beliefs about who you are, your abilities, your capabilities, you know, your assets, you know, the, your liabilities, um, how you feel about your achievements, how you feel about your failures, you know, that's all involved in self-concept. So when we start to look at this, how we feel about ourselves, that becomes where self-esteem comes in. So self-esteem is the evaluative component of a self-concept. So who I am is one thing. How I feel about who I am is another thing, right? So who I am is my self-concept. My evaluation of me 
is my self-esteem. So we could generally, or I guess in, you could think about it in terms of, we could generally classify ourselves as even either having negative self-esteem or positive self-esteem. Do I think well of myself or do I think poorly of myself? We could think of ourselves as having healthy self-esteem or toxic self-esteem. A healthy self-esteem would be a self-esteem that helps me function better in life, right? A relationship with myself, an evaluation of myself that enhances my relationship with myself, enhances my relationship with you, the people in my life, enhances my relationship with my relationship with a higher power if I have one, and enhances my relationship with life itself. Unhealthy self-esteem or toxic self-esteem does the rest. It works against us, right? It's It creates a real impediment to this true positive self-esteem based on authenticity and humility. We'll get into how that connects in a minute. So if my evaluation of myself is harsh, meaning I don't measure up. Now, what do we mean by I don't measure up? You know, it's not like that there's one standard that everybody has, but in a way there is one standard. And it's it's very idiosyncratic. Each of us sets that standard for ourselves. These are the ideas that I have about who I am supposed to be, to be okay, to be all right, to belong, to be lovable to deserve love, to feel like I'm I'm accepted, right, and acceptable. So everybody has a set of ideas about that. What we never do is we take that so much for granted, we never stop to think is the way I feel about myself, you know, healthy or unhealthy. We don't even think about that. You know, we at times we get hung up on how other people are treating us, but what I'm here to say to everybody is how you treat yourself lays the foundation for how other people treat you and also how you deal with the way that people treat you. Now, you said something important before because negative self-esteem can be both an inflation of ourselves as well as a, a denigration or a deflation of ourselves. We can either think too great about us, ourselves, right? Or we could think too little about ourselves. You know, so I love what Tom says. If he was here, I'm sure he'd be chiming in now. He says, yes, yes, there's arrogance, and then there's negative arrogance. Arrogance says, I'm the best person in the room. Negative arrogance says, I'm the worst person in the room. Well, they're both doing the same thing. You see, they're both the relationship we have when we're either inflating ourselves or deflating ourselves is distorted because we're neither that great or that terrible. <laughs> you know, we're just not. I mean, we are much more than what our self-esteem thinks of us at any mm -hmm. given time. It takes a while to get our self-esteem calibrated so that it is it is appropriate to who we are and how we're functioning in our life. Now, to do that is no small task. That's what I love about this idea that recovery is a lifelong journey. 
you know, I've been in the program for 51 years now, just celebrated 51 years last month. My sense of self has changed so dramatically. You know, we talk about step 12C and having had a spiritual awakening as a result of these steps. Well, spiritual awakening to me includes a major shift in my self-esteem. Now, that shift in my self-esteem comes from having a major shift in my consciousness. See, before, and this is, I think, one of the things that happens in our culture, Patrick, our culture is so focused on having and on evaluating ourselves based on what we have. And that's the result of living in this capitalistic, materialistically oriented society. Right. Consume and you'll be okay. Well, remember that great skit on Saturday night? Hmm. Remember with what were they called? The uh, That group of people that came from outer space and they were living in the... Oh, yeah, uh, the Coneheads. The Coneheads. The Coneheads. And, and what were the Coneheads? They were about consumption. I forgot about that. Oh, my God. Yeah, that was kind of they the were a parody uh, tenet of them. Is, yeah. This was a parody. They were a parody on this focus on having. Eric Fromm, a brilliant psycho psychologist and social critic, said, in our culture, the belief is I am more the more I have. I'll say that again. I am more the more I have. That prompted jokes like the one that George Carlin did with having things, right? And even to get bigger and bigger garages and bigger houses so you could do what? So you could have more stuff. Mm -hmm. And what do you do with the stuff? You put it in a garage. (laughs) (laughs) It was ridiculous when I heard him do that skit. I was in stitches. But part of the, the what made me laugh about is I could see myself in that so much. Yeah, me too. You know, look, there's guys today now. I just read an article the other day. They're going in and having a very, very painful surgery. So these are guys about my size. They're five, six, right? I'm probably five, five as I'm getting older. I'm shrinking, Patrick. (laughs) Shrinking man. So they're about five, six. They want to be six foot tall. So they go in and they extend their legs by six inches through surgery. Holy shit. I didn't even know this was a thing. It is a thing. They have to cut the femur and they have to graph a bone in between. And that process, you know, I'm not sure how long it takes to heal, but the pain in that is incredible. Now, how come these guys are putting themselves through it? Their idea is if I'm six foot tall, I'll be okay. I like myself more because now I'm living up to this idea or this idealized image of who I should be. So this becomes a, you know, it really tells us something that's very important here that all of this, you know, look at how much money is spent in plastic surgery a year. It's a billion dollar industry. Mm -hmm. Women going in to get facelifts, to go do this. I, I don't have anything wrong. I'm not judging anybody about being driven to be the best they can, look the best they can. And there's people that I think that it's quite appropriate to. But you will see, you know, well, Michael Jackson, I thought he was a a good looking young man. Yeah, of course. Um, But he had body dysmorphia, right? Or that would probably be one name for it. On this quest to get the perfect look. And Mm -hmm. it was horrible. I mean, it was horrible what happened to him. 
So anyway, what, what I'm saying with all of this is that in our society, it is very difficult to grow up with healthy self-esteem. Our parents unintentionally send us messages we should be different than we are. If we were, then they'd be happier with us. <laughs> Do you have to complain all the time? So what's the message? You're a complainer. Yeah. You know, do you have to whine? What's the message is? You're not okay the way they are, the way you are. You've got to change. Look, I'm guilty of that just like the other person. I'm probably more aware of it, and I probably do it a little less, but it still comes out of my mouth. It still happens. So all of this stuff, all these messages are coming in from all these different areas. Well, no wonder why at a very, very early age, none of us feel that great about ourselves. And we either deal with that by having a low self-esteem or we go the other way and we're going to just be better than everybody else, mm -hmm. right? <laughs> and that's how we're going to handle this stuff. And it, it doesn't get handled that way. Any life that's based on a rejection of who you are can never work. I'll say that again. Any life that's based on a rejection of who you are can never work. The foundation for our life must be on a relationship based on accepting ourselves as we are. That doesn't mean that we just are resigned, that we don't grow, we don't continue to strive to become better. It just means that we start with accepting ourselves as we are, that we just are going to improve ourselves. We're not going to change ourselves. Yeah, yeah. I, uh, I love the trajectory that you guys uh, have been describing on Thursdays about um, – we kind of, as we're developing our self-image in our youth, we just kind of pick up things that are lying around uh, and make these, you know, the, uh, okay, I need this, this, and this to be accepted um, into the club. And, um, you know, uh, from person to person, it varies, but um, the kind of formation of that guardian uh, figure that, you know, ideal self that, we, that we're going to aspire to can sometimes take us pretty far afield from reality. And then in uh, recovery, right, the work then becomes um, we need to, to kind of demolish that image or take it apart anyway and form a new matrix that's more in alignment with the way things actually are rather than. I think demolish is the right word. We have to deconstruct these ideas of who we have to be, who we think we have to be how we think life works. You know, we, we need to go through a complete, complete psychic shift. You know, Dr. Carl Jung called it a complete rearrangement of the concepts and motives that drive us. And it really takes that. That's, that's the, the transformation that occurs that is so magical in recovery. Because once you start to grow along these lines, and as we've been talking about, you know, on Thursday night, we went through how do the 12 steps help create, you know, emotional sobriety, right? Well, one of the ways is that it, it shapes our consciousness very differently. We develop a consciousness that creates freedom, not a consciousness that creates imprisonment. And the consciousness we had before is very, very, very tight and rigid and fixed. When we're fixed like that, we cannot develop you know, authentic or a, a, a self-esteem based on humility and authenticity. So you can now start to understand what I mean, is that when we start to accept ourselves as we are, 
Now our life is grounded. It's rooted in being authentic. Right, because life occurs on a broad bandwidth, not a narrow bandwidth. And when we exist on a narrow band bandwidth, we're just going to get super fucked up. We're only okay when it's in that bandwidth. You know, what do we say? A broken clock has the right time twice a day. But what happens for the rest of the time? Well, we're all broken clocks. I mean, we have the right time twice a day. But that's not, if you want freedom, you need to be able to have a broad bandwidth you're talking about so that you can handle whatever challenges life sets before you. Then instead of being discouraged when something happens and getting into either self-pity or, or, or anger and rage because you're a victim, what happens is you get busy with coping with what is. You put your focus on dealing with what is going on. Virginia Satir, a brilliant family therapist, said that. Life is what it is. It's how we cope with it that counts. That's what creates true self-esteem. So now we're talking about another component of self-esteem. It's, it's, it is a refusal to have an adversarial relationship with yourself, but it is also a sense that you are capable of dealing with whatever life sets in front of you that you have that capacity doesn't mean you have the answers. Sometimes it just means I know if I'm stuck, I've got somebody I can turn to to get help. My therapist, my sponsor, the meeting I go to, you know, my friends in recovery, all of those things become our recovery capital. So now our base, like you said, is so much broader, right? Where it's not based on this, this, what I call unhealthy self-reliance. Self-reliance is fine to a certain degree, but not when we're out of balance. And that's what Bill talked about. Self-esteem is real maturity and balance. And that's what we're talking about here is real maturity, right? Real maturity is, is and balance means having some self-reliance. I need to step up and be responsible for myself, but it doesn't mean I need to, I can do it all by myself. If I, if I could give somebody a gift, uh, and when we're and we're talking about this context, it would be if I could if I could convince certain people that are really struggling with recovery or with mental health issues that they actually do have that capacity to um, handle their shit. Um, that's not the kind of thing you can give to somebody, though. That's something that uh, they have to construct uh, on their own. And I I think the the best solution I can come up with today for how to engender that in someone is just. Over time, if you can just give somebody time, because um, evidence accumulates and, you know, people become inspired if they have, you know, on a long enough timeline. But I, I don't know if I'm making sense, but well, I think that that's one component of it. See, I would say it's another thing, because if your consciousness about who you're supposed to be, if you don't let go of that. then even if you have time, you're going to just continue to do the same thing to yourself. You know, this is this is the insight that, that Ernie Larson had when he talked about stage two recovery, right? That stage two recovery is all about dealing with the mountain of problems and issues that present ourselves during, you know, our life, during our lifetime. And he says, what we need to do is become aware of those patterns and habits that make it difficult to cope with life as it is. And now, once we start to focus there, what is the, my pattern here? What's my habitual response to this situation? 
what's my habitual feeling that I have about this? How come I feel the same way about these things when they when they recur in my life? You see what I mean? When we start to be curious about these patterns and habits, that's when we open the door to shifting our consciousness. Because that says, you know what? I need to be aware of what I'm doing so that I can become aware of a new possibility. I can't embrace a new possibility until I own 100% what I am doing. So if I have this expectation, I need to have to be okay. I need to own that. I need to own that that's the way I'm living. So this shift from this negative self-esteem, this self-esteem that's based on all of these, what we call, you know, self, uh, uh, other validated self-esteem, right? Mm -hmm. It, we want to shift it now to a self-validated self-esteem that's not dependent on what happens, but dependent on how we cope with what happens, how we, the relationship we have with ourselves as we cope with what happens. That's an amazing shift in consciousness. Well, you know, um, many of us aren't even aware what our rules are that we impose on ourselves and others. And so part of the sequence that you're, I think you're speaking to is you need to identify, right? Claim it to name it, to claim it, you know, right. and, and then, then you can start to kind of like make those decisions about, well, maybe this is a rule that could be amended somewhat. Right on. I think that's so true. What's been, um, when you're working with people who have a lot of self-hatred and I mean, how, how, when have you had the greatest success in convincing them that advocating for themselves is, uh, is something that could really help them out? Well, let, let's take a minute and let's talk about, um, self-hate for a second before we just jump right into it. Right. Yeah. So self-hate is really based on any distortion of self where we either idealize or degradate ourselves, right? Put ourselves down. This must be viewed as a rejection of our actual self and is therefore self-hating. So anything we do that is based on a rejection of our actual self or true self is an act of self-hate. So any thought, feeling, or action based on any combination of false beliefs, distorted beliefs, which in any either direct or indirect way diminishes, depletes, erases, denigrates, elevates, or hurts our true self is a part of the self-hating process. So it's, it's shocking that most of us only can see our self-hate when we do something really that we feel terrible about, that we're ashamed about, then we hate ourselves for it. But what Dr. Theodore Isaac Rubin said is that self-hate is an undercurrent that is exists all the time in our consciousness. Now, it comes from the idea that I have to be a certain way to be okay. So when there's an idealized self, there's always going to be a despised self. So I'll say that again, when there's an idealized self, when you think you have to be a certain way to be okay, when you have a bunch of shoulds about how you're supposed to act to be okay, you're also going to have a despised self because you're never going to live up to those things. And when you don't, you're going to hate yourself for not living up to them. 
So the minute your idealized self is spawned, you're also your despised self is spawned. And the self-hating process becomes a part of our consciousness. That occurs very early on in life. You'll hear a four-year-old or a five-year-old calling themselves stupid. I hate myself. Now, this is what gets tapped, you know, when we bring it into some of the stuff that's going on. So today, you know, when a kid's self-esteem is so much based on acceptance from others, right? The other validated self-esteem. And a kid now gets pulled at school or on the internet and they start to, to really put the kid down. What do kids do? They hate themselves. The hate gets amplified. They decide to kill themselves. It's tragic. When I say that, I feel so sad. But that's what happens. The self-hate gets so amplified because of what other people are saying about them. And it's already what they're thinking about themselves. But now that there's a validation externally, they think my life can never work. I'd be better off dead. Everybody would be better off if I wasn't here. Well, I'm just so glad that I never followed through uh, on those thoughts when I had them. When I was growing up, I had a lot of problems with bullies. And, um, you know, and I think uh, it was uh, until very recently, you know, I think I put all of my eggs in that basket of I need to I need the approval. I need the validation. I need to be cool. I need to be handsome. Uh, I need to be all those things. And um it just, yeah, led me right into the electric fence. <laughs> so. Well, it does. And look, I, I was, I told you before we got on today, I was, uh, I was uh, looking to watch something. I like watching documentaries at times. And they have this one called The Rescue, right, on National Geographic. And it's about the 13 boys from a Thai soccer team that were trapped in an underground cave and for two weeks. And it was about the rescue. And it just so happened that um, what trapped the boys was that the cave usually closes down in July when there's monsoon season. But this year, I think it was a year ago, the monsoons came earlier in June. And these 13 boys, after they finished playing soccer together, they went in the cave and they were playing around. It was one of the boys' birthday. And then all of a sudden, the monsoon rain came. That cave floods like instantaneously and these boys were trapped in a chamber you know i forgot how far it was but it was a long way from the entrance into the cave yeah just a little air pocket right they were on a shelf it was a big air pocket because the 13 of them were sitting together so there were 12 boys in their coach you know divers would go in and they'd explore in this and the cave but it's it cave diving is a very very particular sport and takes a, a a very unique set of skills they brought in the thai navy seals who are expert divers they couldn't handle it finally turned to uh, two cave divers in the united kingdom to come out and help and see if they could locate the boys well they did but they i mean their outfits different than the guys and stuff like that They've got this one guy made his own rebreather. He uses that instead of an oxygen tank because you have an unlimited supply of air, right? Because it's a rebreather. I yeah. mean, it was remarkable when you saw these guys go in. And finally, they found the boys. But the issue was, how are you going to get them out? Because they would have to swim underwater 
for two and a half hours to get out of the cave. And they already tried to rescue a couple workers that were stranded that only had to swim for a half an hour underwater. And these guys panicked. They could not handle it because you're claustrophobic. Every Everything's closed in. Sometimes you're pushing yourself through space like that, right? So they're thinking, how are we going to get these boys out? Well, make a long story short, you know, they decided to that they would have to anesthetize them and swim them out and put them in a state like in an anesthesia where they're just barely alive, but they're not reacting so that the one guy can completely control them and take them out. They put a call out for all the cave divers in the world. There's 10 cave divers in the world. All of them showed up. Just 10. 10. 10 cave divers showed up. Now, they weren't the only ones that did this. The the Navy, the Army, the Thai Army, they had to help get these kids out once they were rescued. It was an incredible effort. The Air Force sent in nurse special forces units. They were helpful. I mean, it was a remarkable thing. But at the end, every one of these guys was one of those kids that would have been bullied and made fun of on the playground. And one of the guys said, it touches me to say, even say it. He says, wow, you know, all of that, you know, what I went through and all of the pain of that, you know, right now, it's all been taken away because now I see who I am and what contribution I make to this world. And it was amazing when these guys would, they, they would cry when they would bring one of these kids up. Hmm. All 12 kids were rescued. The day after the rescue, monsoons came and lasted for seven months. They would have never been rescued. The boys would have died in the cave. It was a remarkable story. One Navy SEAL, Thai Navy SEAL, died when he was trying to bring wetsuits to the boys because they had to dress them all up in wetsuits to get them out. Yeah. Ran out of air. Um, Because it's, once again, that thing. It takes a very unique set of skills to manage that situation. So, you know, what I'm getting to with all of this is that this accepting ourselves as we are and letting go of all of these ideas that we've accepted uncritically about who we should be is the path to our freedom. But only way we come become aware of them is when we see the opposite, when we see ourselves hating ourselves, when we see ourselves judging ourselves, when we see ourselves putting ourselves down then we can start to realize and become aware of this self-hating process and challenge these rules and ideas that we've accepted uncritically about who we need to be. And that begins liberation. It's when you start to challenge these things and you get more focused on being who you are rather than being who you should be is when your self-esteem changes. You know, I was... um talking to my girlfriend uh the other day about um some problems that my parents have been having and uh, uh my girlfriend said at one point she's just like uh you know the your mom she's uh there's just a few things that she needs to do about herself for herself and it's so simple you know it's so easy and she just chooses not to do it and i mean i ourselves are our biggest blind spot when i ever whenever i uh hear somebody saying, you know, like, well, uh, the answer is just sitting right in front of them. Um, you know, uh, the self-hating process, you know, we could use as the example in this case, um, you know, why don't they, um, 
you know, why don't they uh, get a wrench out and make that little adjustment um, just to correct the course? And I think like um, it's our biggest blind spot and, and, and unpacking and kind of like finding a way to think critically and objectively about the experiences we're having when there's just so much distortion that that's created over time. You know, it's, I think it's the, it, for me anyway, it's the biggest challenge of life is learning to. And listen, we'll give people one little tip before we wrap up this discussion and we'll probably, we'll be continuing this again next week when Tom's back is that look, become aware of your, how you think about yourself and you can do that, especially how you, the negative things you think about yourself. What I dislike about myself, take that sentence root and write it on a piece of paper and, and write down all that comes to your mind. What I dislike. If you want to be braver, what I despise about myself, write down all those things. What I hate about myself, what I will never accept about myself, what I'm most ashamed of, you know, explore those roots. That will give you a picture of your self-esteem and how you're judging yourself, and then see if you can challenge each and every one of them with some critical thinking. Is this really true? Do I need to be this way to be okay? If you can do that, you can start to unpack some of this stuff and clear the way for the development of true self-esteem that's based on humility, humility being accepting yourself as you are. You know, it's, it's having an appropriate you know, estimation of your success and failures. It's being able to accept your limitations, learn from your mistakes, own your gaps in knowledge. That's what humility is. And so when we're humble, we start to learn from our experience rather than judge ourselves based on our experience. Well, that's what I've been after. Um, and I'll continue getting after it because I've got a lot of work left to do. Sounds good. Okay, Tom, we look forward to seeing you next week. Missing you, Tom. Um, until next time. Thanks for joining us, guys. Listen, guys, don't forget, come and join us on Thursday nights. Patrick has been our video archivist, and he's created an incredible video library that's on a YouTube channel for the Institute for Optimal Recovery and Emotional Sobriety. There's probably over 80 videos, you know, of a lot of great discussions about emotional sobriety, how the steps help us achieve emotional sobriety, differentiation, and now we're looking at how do the steps help us improve our self-esteem or the development of true self-esteem, this this humility and, and authentic-based self-esteem. I'll include the link in the show notes. Thank Thanks you so much. Tinge your life, tinge your myth. Cultivate your narrative with whomever you're with. Then with glass in hand and children on one knee. Bring some stories. Bring your stories back to me. It ain't a crime to be a human. Never be ashamed to be yourself. Rest assured that whatever you're doing, entertain me like nobody else so here's to us my old friends until it's time to drink the wine and break the bread again 
glass in hand and children on me Bring some stories, bring your stories back to me